Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. I'm always in awe of designers and architects who actually create tangible projects that stand the test of time and make communities come together, whether that be in the form of sky-high buildings, bold bridges or public artworks that often harmonise and reflect where we live and how we work in that neighbourhood. Clever design can literally change lives and make us all happier and healthier. Just picture the Eiffel Tower in France or the Brooklyn Bridge in New York or even that humble Hills Hoist clothing line and you can quickly get what I mean. Today I'm in conversation with Jane Harrison. She is founding director of JDH Architects and has been at the helm since its inception 19 years ago. Through her leadership and pioneering vision, the business has delivered on extensive portfolios of education and community projects and has earned a reputation as one of Australia's most creative and dynamic architecture firms. Jane's entrepreneurial spirit and affection for disruption led her to build on the notorious JDH brand. In 2012, Jane and her team envisioned and successfully launched JDH Ed, a forum for speakers, thinkers and dreamers to come together in the exchange of knowledge and ideas. Specialising in educational architecture has allowed Jane to combine her love of creativity and lifelong learning, and her thirst for knowledge has established the practice as leaders in educational architecture, planning and design. She's a leading voice advocating resilient and responsible architecture and building methodologies and takes her professional responsibility for global stewardship seriously. Believing in a better way to practice her profession, where people and the environment are the cornerstone of good design, she looks towards long-lasting solutions that support a responsible and resilient thriving future, the built environment and the communities they serve. As an engaging communicator, Jane frequently speaks at educational conferences in Australia and abroad. She's an avid supporter of gender equality in architectural and construction spaces and regularly calls out the industry through speaking opportunities and seminars. She's also extremely passionate about supporting other female entrepreneurs and would love to see more women working alongside her in leadership roles. And today we are discussing the politics of design. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for the lovely introduction and thank you so much for inviting me today. Of course. So what was your first paid job and where did that lead you career-wise? Can you cast your mind back? (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, that's a very funny question. I suppose my first paid job was probably when I was about 11 years old. And uh, I took over my cousin's paper round for a couple of weeks. I think he was away on on a scout camp. And I still remember it now. It was in the northeast of England. It was freezing cold, pouring with rain. And we were delivering the Teesside Gazette, which is kind of a freebie newspaper that went out to all of our neighbours. So yeah, I, I kindly took on his uh, on his round. Did you page? Did he split it? How did you kind of do that? Oh, well, look, it was about, yeah. it was about 75 pence. But actually, I was probably overpaid because I decided that it would be a really good idea to take all of the newspapers and dump them into an empty house, uh, which, of course, I got caught. And really, it was probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned because, you know, it certainly taught me that there are 
definitely no shortcuts in life. If you want something, you do actually have to work for it. And, uh, you know, all joking aside, the fear of, you know, kind of being caught and the shame of it, to be quite honest, taught me really how to take responsibility for my actions and how, in fact, it's actually easier to be honest and have integrity than to try and duck and dive and, you know, take shortcuts to, to get out of a situation. Absolutely. Some lifelong learning there at age 11. So I think it's probably worth the job. What does your focus on educational architecture actually entail? And why does that interest you so much? A lot of, a lot of the audience may not be so familiar with what that term means. Yeah, look, well, we, we basically design for all levels of, of education. So everything from early learning through to tertiary. Um, mostly we work in, with schools, which is absolutely fantastic. So our mission at JDH is to create environments that enable people to shine. And we love working in schools because they really do share our core values. You know, at JDH, we're really about people and place and, of course, the planet. But one of the key fundamental things that we love is learning. And obviously, working with schools gives an opportunity to combine everything that we enjoy. We enjoy, you know, engaging with people and human-centered design. Of course, we enjoy architecture. We love designing. We love the challenges that, you know, many school sites have. But most of all, we love learning. And for us, working with schools and working with educators is just such a delight because they are so good at sharing their knowledge. So, for you know, it's really um, one of those things where it's a win-win situation. Absolutely. So when you say schools, are we talking primary and high school or is there a sweet spot in there? Yep. Look, it's, you know, we work in public and private schools. We do a lot of work with Catholic schools. We really kind of work across, uh, you know, all gamuts of education. It just depends on, uh, obviously, in New South Wales, there's, there's a constant push to develop more schools. So we do just do government work. But really, it's, it's working with independent schools and private schools where we get to do the work that we really love, which is the pre-engagement, developing of the vision and being able to work in alignment with, you know, their school's educational aspirations, which in that sector, you know, is, is kind of very different whereas with the government it's it's almost like a predefined process. Great so what's some of the biggest errors you think people generally make when it comes to designing a statement building because you know obviously architecture is there usually for the long haul or at least a number of decades and then of course then bringing that to life because it's all very well I imagine to have your your fancy CAD drawings and you know your ideas <laughs> and even your little models I love those little models that they often show you in display centers and councils and so forth but what are some of the, I guess, those rookie errors that people can make when they're not sort of as conscious as you are of all the elements that's involved? And as the architect, you know, what role do you play in that process to make sure that it's not just fit for purpose, but it's it's bit bigger than that and better than that? Well, Amber, I actually uh, love this question because, you know, for me, I think I set up my practice so uh, that I would be a, you know, anti-statement building architect. You know, what I see is that really the biggest error that um, architects make is thinking that architecture is about buildings because in my mind, it's not really, it's about people. You know, architecture is about raising people up, not just people and communities, but actually, you know, really society as a whole. And when you ask me to talk about statement buildings, you know, I, I you know, quite Shy easily. Shy away from it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's also as well, it's really about how in Australia we, we see that and how those buildings are built and procured and by who. You know, if we were to compare, for example, Australia with Europe, you know, we really do have a lot to learn when it comes to creating places and buildings that are community based and that will actually, you know, are being built for the well-being and good of everybody. 
So, um, you know, for example, if we were to look at the, you know, the Sydney Football Stadium, and I was just looking at this this morning, uh, you may or may not know that it's actually currently being rebuilt. Oh, yes, and, very well. Yeah. We are big Sydney FC fans. Yeah, yeah. So we are just <laughs> waiting for that stadium. So you'll know, you'll know the old, old stadium, Amber, compared to the new one. Do you, do you feel like the old one is very much different? I think it is. I mean, I, I just I think because it, it was there for so long, there was yeah. some sort of attachment to it in a way because it was growing up. It was always there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know we work a lot on big infrastructure projects and and with with government, you know, and we see that kind of process and how those buildings are built. And and one of the key things that I think is fundamental and it's certainly you know overlooked far too much is the you know the value of good design and. Uh, it's interesting. The Sydney Football Stadium is an interesting one. It's costing around about eight hundred twenty-eight million dollars and, and counting at the moment. You know, but we really like that's a huge investment. You know, and it's whether we are actually being guided by government and leadership in spending that money, and if those buildings and the design of those buildings will actually contribute to more than just you know the current economy and uh, construction industry you know if we were to look at San Mam's stadium in Bilbao you know it, it costs you know, possibly about the same but it's a building that's actually been built and, and heralded for architecture for innovation you know it has a museum it runs educational programs you know it's open from eight to six every day you know looking at those kind of statement buildings compared to you know what we're delivering currently in New South Wales I think we need to look at how much buildings can benefit society and how, you know, in the design of the buildings, we can actually make them more sustainable, more usable, you know, more well-loved. And that really comes through good design. So I think that's one of the key things and one of the, the rookie errors that's been made at the moment is that, you know, we really need to take a step, step back and just value, as you said, what good design is. Absolutely. So I guess that leads to my next question about sustainable design. And in some ways, I mean, you might have a different view on this, but just my kind of observation as a citizen of the world is that sometimes it's a bit subjective. You know, materials were limited perhaps 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Design and construction's obviously come a long way. Things can be of their era. But are there some tried and true ways to build structures that have that form, the function and generally agreeable design there, I'm thinking of things like the Sydney Opera House, which have been there for a long time, and most people would say that that's a good building, that's a, that's like done its job, but it's also iconic. Or some a structure like Barangaroo in Sydney, which is much more modern, is kind of mixed use buildings because it's you know a bit of play and a bit of residential, and then a little bit of um, I guess a hotel, which is for the elite, for example. And then I'm thinking of even the Docklands in London, which when I was living in London all those years ago was quite controversial, redeveloping a what was really a Essentially, a sort of you know working class area into a lovely wharf for a bunch of investment bankers. So, are there some <laughs> things in there which kind of harmonise people on this, or how do you really get to that sustainability piece quickly? I think the Opera House is a you know a really good example. We always say that the best, the most sustainable building is a building that's never been built. You know, what people don't actually recognise when it comes to sustainability, there's a there's a huge shift in mindset that we need to make to to really educate people to understand that sustainable buildings aren't buildings with you know photovoltaics or water tanks. About thirty nine percent of Australia's emissions is created by the built environment, and interestingly enough. 
about 90% of a building's emissions in its lifetime is actually, are actually caused by building the building. So if we were to take something like the Opera House, you know, it is hugely sustainable because of its longevity. I mean, could you imagine anybody saying that they would, uh, you know, let's knock down the Opera House and rebuild it. You know, it's going to be there for literally uh, certainly our lifetimes and, and, you know, hopefully hundreds of years to come. And again, I think that turns back, you know, we need to look back at why that is. And it's because of, uh, you know, the innovative approach that was taken to its design. And, you know, buildings that are well designed, that have longevity, are inherently sustainable. But I think, you know, moving forward, there are so many different ways and changes in the way that buildings are constructed, you know, how they operate, the technology that we can use and implement, even in the design process, that, you know, the long-term lens, really, we need to be focusing on buildings that are not just less bad for the environment, but actually positively contribute to reversing climate change. For example, what are you thinking, sort of, you know, grey water systems? Are we talking solar panels? What sort of tangible aspects are are we talking about here? Look, I think everything, you know, if you think about anything in life that's important, it really is a a series of connections and things that come together in a holistic way. At JDH, there's um, a system that we use called the Living Building Challenge, and that actually describes architecture and development, you know, in a series of petals. So it's quite a lovely uh, kind of analogy, really. So they look at, you know, how is the building's uh, site selected? So is a building, you know, building on a brownfield site, which is a, a site that was already had a building on, is less environmentally damaging than building on a greenfield site. You know, looking at if you're building on a site, how are you actually affecting the local waterways? Looking at how that building's uh, being built, obviously, is really important. And also looking how a building's kind of energy and water is actually being conserved. But one of the key things that we like about this philosophy is that one of the petals talks about wonder and delight. So making sure that buildings are built so that they are beautiful, you know, and that they inspire people to do things, they inspire people to do better. So for us, really, it's that kind of holistic approach, bringing everything together and bringing people together, you know, to make those decisions early in the piece when it comes to design is really what's important. And it's really how you successfully achieve a sustainable building. Yeah, that's well described. I think people would have a a clear idea of what you're talking about, at least through those descriptions. So with over 25 years of architectural experience under your belt, and you've obviously delivered, it says here, 150 Australian international projects. That's phenomenal, Jane. You're obviously acutely aware, I guess, the gender imbalance issues that permeate your industry. And we've talked a little bit about that in the introduction. You know, we know that women in architecture and construction are still outnumbered by by the blokes these days and only 12% of women account for the workforce in construction, for example, which sounds like it hasn't moved for a very long time. You know, perhaps the past 30 years we're just at this stalemate. I'd love to hear from your sort of expertise and your experience in the sector. What is it that you think would need to happen and to shift the dial on this dramatically so that there's more gender equality and people don't just kind of come into the industry and leave the industry as well. Like I think about some of the sectors that I consult with and, you know, for example, banking and financial services and legal, they're getting better. But a lot of people, you know, particularly women, once they have children, they can't be the leader anymore because the hours are too demanding or it's not flexible enough for their lifestyle. So what are some of the things that you can you think of that would actually encourage more women to want to trailblaze, if you like, and, and change this balance? 
Look, it's a, that's an excellent question, Amber, but it's also a very difficult one. For somebody like me, you know, I was raised in the northeast of England and, you know, women didn't become architects. In fact, you know, my, you know, it, where in the village that I was brought up, if you were, you know, the most glamorous jobs being the mobile hairdresser, I think that was what I always aspired to. It was, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So from a very early age, you know, I've kind of been, I like to say, uh, different, you know, other to normal people. So, so the path that I've traveled in a sense has been quite easy. I have a very, you know, my personality is to, to if, I, if I see a challenge, to take it on board. But it's also, actually, to be quite honest, my, my personality is that I'm a, a huge, enormous rebel. You know, and we were inspired by, obviously, uh, you know, feminism in the 1960s is a little bit before my time. But in the UK, you know, in the 70s, we had women's uh, peace camp. You know, there was a lot of talk and a lot of conversation around women and feminist issues. It kind of died down a little bit, I think, in, you know, the late 90s and early uh, 20s. And it's come to the forefront again. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves, like, how much has really changed? I think the way that architectural practices and knowledge is structured is, is very masculine. And, you know, that is one of the reasons that I set up J. Traditional architecture practices are, you know, you'll know, have a look, Google architecture practices in Sydney, and it's always three initials, which is why I chose three initials. Unfortunately, they're all mine. Uh, you know, and it's three, it's three guys, you know, one's good at design, one's good at business, and one's good at sales and marketing, you know, and that's how a practice works successfully and that is a successful formula um but you know we have to understand that everything is is really relative for for me you know things the way that i see my life you know is obviously improving and better but it's really come from having personality that has always said you know i'm not going to take that i'm going to stand up and these are my principles. If you don't agree with them, I was going to say I won't swear, but that's normally what I do. So, um, but you know, we're seeing great women doing that uh, now. You know, we've seen so many women standing up. You know, even my own daughters. Uh, you know, they really, really don't take uh, any nonsense from anyone. And they, you know, they are. I, I see current women being able to fight these battles, and I think I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm really excited about current conversations that are going on. But really, I think we need to be fearless. Uh, that's the only really way that we're going to make a difference. We need to look at what's happened in the past and how slowly things has changed. For us, you know, for me, I really feel the solution is just to never stop, you know, rocking the, the status quo, never stop, you know, standing up for what you believe in and challenging situations, people, you know, even kind of mindsets that just really are outdated and need to change. Absolutely. So who is your favourite architect and why? And I imagine this might be quite a challenging question or it might not be. Oh, look, it is an absolutely challenging question for numerous reasons. One is that I'm, uh, you know, as a as an entrepreneur, I change my mind every day. You know, I'm always looking for something new. But one one um, architect that really has inspired me is a woman called Sarah Wigglesworth, who is an architect in the UK. Now, some of you might have seen the grand design she did uh, quite a few years ago on her house, which is in Islington, and the, it was constructed from hay bales. Oh, I remember um, that yeah, one. Do you remember yeah, that? Absolutely. So, yeah, she she's very well known for that. But actually, her architectural scope and spectrum is is far beyond residential. The scale of her work is is similar, really, to ours. And she has always championed, you know, meaningful, resilient, and sustainable design since the early nineties. So, you know, I, I love her because she's not only an outstanding architect; she really is a woman of principle and action, and you know, somebody that I admire. 
Great. Well, that was excellent because it was someone I hadn't heard of until you mentioned the hay bales. <laughs> so that's the thing. Sometimes people know your building before they know your name. Is that right? <gasps> that thing with architects? I don't know. Oh, look, I don't know. I mean, I, I used to work for Norman Foster and, you know, every Norman Foster building kind of looks the same. Mm-hmm. Having said that. Like Harry's Butler buildings. They have a distinct look. Yeah. I mean, having said that, obviously, that's, you know, there'll be architects in the, in the crowd that won't agree with me in that sense. You know, the process that he uses is impeccable. But there is a there is a look, you know. If you know, uh, if you know, you know Foster's building when you see one. For us, we've always really not been like that. I think if you look on our website, most of our projects are very different because we tend to start, you know, with no assumptions. And it's not about who we are; it's about the people that we're building for us. So you know, that's kind of very different. But uh, yes, it is. It is very hard to to talk about architects that you admire. So who have been your greatest mentors, maybe one or two, and what have had, had, why have they had such an impact on your life and career? Well, look, I think, you know, as I said, when I talk about my, my misspent youth, you know, I was really, really fortunate. My parents weren't university educated. And in fact, my father was orphaned quite young and he won a scholarship to grammar school, but couldn't go because he couldn't afford a pair of shoes and the school uniform, which is, you know, really sad. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. But uh, and I suppose like staying on my father, he was my, you know, one of my greatest inspirations. He was in the Merchant Navy and uh, where he was a diver. And we lived on the northeast coast of England, a place called Saltburn, which is quite famous for surfing. And that surfing was actually started and instigated by my father and his friends. So they took their diving suits and cut them down and made wetsuits for surfing. They made their own surfboards. Um, I even opened a shop in Saltburn um, selling surfboards. Um, And this was when I was about five or six. And you have to understand how out there this was, you know. And, you know, but he's also a guy, he wasn't a hippie, you know, he was a guy who didn't really like any fancy food, very kind of straightforward, very northern, you know, and and really, my life as a child taught me that I could be whoever I wanted to be and do anything that I wanted to do. And I think that love and that support is really, you know, the best mentoring that I've ever had. Excellent. So um, I'm going to ask you a bit of a Ford Focus question now. If we spoke again in a year's time, what would be the number one thing you would have hoped to have changed in your business or career and why? Look, I, I think for me, we really want to awaken people around the conversation of sustainable design. Obviously, we've all you know, got wet and suffered last week. But but globally, what is going on with climate change, you know, can no longer be ignored. And as architects, we are culpable for climate change if we don't become responsible. So I would like to really assert our brand in that area. I'd like to be able to educate people and to speak more about that. And also as well to be able to look at myself and say, yeah, we've actually put our money where our mouth is. You know, as an architect, it's very difficult to change the conversation around sustainable design. People often see it in a very short-sighted view feel that it's too expensive, something that they can't afford, something they will come back to if they have the money at the end of the project, you know, and we really need to, um, and we do already, but we, you know, we really need to hone our skills to make our clients understand that that there is a long-term view and a long-term perspective and a long-term value to sustainable design and, you know, be in a position where we can walk away and say, no, I'm sorry, but, you know, your values and our values don't align, you know, you'll need to uh, go to another architect but hopefully you know more architects will be taking the same stance that we are and, and they definitely are so that we can as I said 
you know, produce architects that are positive in regards to climate change and really try and put ourselves and the world in a better place than it is now. A final takeaway message for all of us today on the politics of design. I would say speak out, stand up and be proud. Great. Oh, and if all else fails, just be so bloody brilliant and hardworking, they can't ignore you. Oh, I love that. That sounds like a real Northern England thing to say. I have really, I love your accent. I just, I love my Northern London friends. I just love that sound. Um, so it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today. If you do want to connect further with Jane Harrison and find out a bit more about her and what her practice does, there are some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.